This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. Joining me this week is Laith Kalaf, AJ Bell's Head of Investment Analysis. Yeah, hi, Laura. Uh, We're going to be bringing you the biggest market news from the past week. And we've got two fund manager interviews to discuss the hot topic of the banking mini crisis and its knock-on effect on markets. So first interview is the manager of Fidelity European Trust. He's going to be telling us how the team navigated that recent turmoil in the banking sector with with a particular heavy weighting towards financials within their portfolio. And the second of those interviews is with Edmund Harris, who is Chief Investment Officer of Guinness Global Investors. On top of that, we're going to be talking about why the IMF thinks we might be returning to a low interest rate world, which will be a big relief for any mortgage holders out there. And I'll be revealing a little known benefit that could help grandparents boost their state pension. But as always, first up, let's delve into the market's news, albeit in a bit of a shorter week. We've had employment and inflation numbers out in America. So, Laith, what do they tell us about the health of the US economy and, crucially, the prospect for any more interest rate rises? Yeah, so um, job, jobs numbers came out from the US um, last week. So um, US added 236,000 jobs in March. Sounds like quite a lot, and it is. Um, you know, it's still a relatively strong labour market, but that is a slower pace than we've been used to uh, recently. So uh, the average over the last six months is 330,000, um, and we had 500,000 in January. So it's a, a bit of a step down. We also saw wage growth moderating to 4.2% in March from 4.6% um, in February. And at the same time, we've also had a survey out about from the US Department of Labor showing US job openings in February dropped below 10 million. And that's the first time it's done that since May 2021. So, you know, all in that kind of, you know, indications that, that the job market is is cooling a bit. It's still very strong, but, you know, some of the froth is being blown off. Uh, we've also had kind of job cuts being announced by big companies like Disney, you know, McDonald's and, and Accenture in recent weeks. And even the big tech companies, we know, are cutting their cloth to the kind of new economic environment. Um, you know, I know it's not in America, but there have been reports that in Europe, in, in, in France, Amazon is actually offering people very generous payoffs to leave their employment. Um, to, to actually quit Amazon, uh, and that's probably because there's quite quite um, high levels of kind of protection for for workers in in, in the EU. Um, but you know, over, over in the US, you know, unemployment is still low, three point five percent. The the labour market, um, you know, is still strong, but signs that that it's cooling, and that of course points to perhaps a, a, a pause or, or possibly even the start of a reversal in interest rate policy. Um, in the in the US, uh, and we've also just had um, inflation figures out um, from the US as well. So uh, the, their CPI figure has now fallen to five percent. Um, that's fallen from from six percent in February, and and that's down from a peak of nine point one percent in June. So it's really heading in the right direction. Core inflation is still looking a bit sticky. Um, actually kind of pretty much staying where where it was over the course of the month. Um, so that will cause a bit of concern, I think, to the Federal Reserve. But but again, you know, kind of when you com- combine that with the labour market and also the kind of banking market turmoil as well, because, you know, the, the, the issue with the banks means that there's probably going to be a bit of a, a kind of credit crunch, less credit going out into the uh, economy, less loans going out into the economy. That actually does the job of 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 
instead of raising interest rates of cooling the economy. So, um, you know, markets now looking at looking at the market, actually thinking that, you know, kind of, you know, the, the, the Fed might be close to or done with its interest rate hiking policy and might actually be looking at, uh, at, um, at cutting rates in not too distant future. And there's also been news of a hotly anticipated IPO for a UK tech company, which I feel like we've not had for a while. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's quite an old tech company. It's Arm, the chip technology uh, company. So uh, started life in, in 1990, a small group of engineers working out of, of a barn in Cambridge. Um, you know, it kind of, you know, is a, a, a leader in, in, in chip net technology. It got in very early with kind of big players like Texas Instruments, but also uh, Nokia and, and Samsung. Um, so, you know, it was it was a key player in, in, I don't know if you remember, the Nokia 6110, Laura, and the don't. fantastic mobile game Snake. Do you remember Snake? I, of course I remember Snake. You remember Snake, good. I wondered if you were too young to remember Snake, and it makes me feel good <laughs> that you're not too young to remember Snake. So, so yes, basically a game that, you know, you used to play kind of like while you were waiting for the train. You couldn't surf the internet or, you know, listen to this podcast, for instance. So you would play a really pretty rubbish game on your phone and like the you know kind of arm technology was was behind behind all of that so um you know listed on stock market in in 98 obviously we've had kind of smartphones internet of things gaming consoles so you know it's it's ballooned it was actually bought by a japanese conglomerate soft uh, softbank back in in 2016 for just over 24 uh, billion dollars and that softbank is now looking to to uh, offload it um, to shore up its its balance sheet, so it looks like reports are that it's going to be re- refloated on the Nasdaq, um, which is a, a U.S. stock exchange. So a little bit of a snub for the the UK, particularly because I think the government's been lobbying pretty hard to get it floated over here. You know, I think from the looks of things, it, it looks like the kind of best that we can perhaps op- op- you know expect is perhaps some sort of secondary listing in in the UK. Uh, but you know the Nasdaq is a very tech, tech technology heavy index. So kind of you know if you're a tech company, you can either go to London and be listed along with you know likes of BP, Shell, HSBC, Unilever, or you go to the Nasdaq and you're listed alongside you know Microsoft, uh, Apple, Amazon. It kind of you know it makes sense from that point of view. So do we know what the valuation is going to be when it does list, or has that not been revealed yet? It's not been revealed. There's, there's some speculation out, out there in the market, but it's pretty wide ranging, anywhere from sort of $30, $30 billion to, to $70 billion. Um, you know, I think probably the timing of this deal is not especially auspicious for SoftBank. If it had done it, you know, 18 months ago before the crash in the in kind of technology sector, probably would have got a, a richer valuation. But obviously, um, you know, that's 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 not the kind of environment we're in at the moment. So um, it's going to still get a reasonable amount of money, probably more than it paid for it. But, um, you know, the, the the market's not really a great place to be selling technology companies at the moment. And speaking of technology companies, our favourite chief executive, Elon Musk, has been all over the news again, talking about his purchase of Twitter. So what's he got to say about that? Yeah, so he's he's been talking to the BBC actually uh, about quite a lot of things, and and yeah, main 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 one was was his purchase of Twitter really, forty four billion dollars um, last year. He admitted for the first time, it's quite a big deal, I think, um, that he bought the firm because a court would have forced him to anyway. So I mean, just to recap on the saga, he kind of. Um, you know, in April of last year, he basically said, yeah, I'd really like to buy Twitter. They did the deal and the kind of price was agreed. 
then he kind of started backtracking on it and tried to wriggle out of it. And the Twitter board were like, well, hang on, no, we've got a deal here. And they took him to court um, uh, to, uh, to to kind of enforce the takeover. Um, he was fighting it, but then in the middle, obviously decided that he wasn't going to win. So uh, he's admitted that actually now that was the reason he, he did end up uh, uh, buying it. He also kind of revealed the, the scale of the job cuts. Um, he said that the twit has been been slimmed down from eight thousand people to to five thousand. Sorry, one thousand one thousand five hundred staff. So like a really big wow. culling, yeah. And he 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 kind of defended the job cuts by by saying that you know Twitter was four months from bankruptcy, which is a bit odd when you think about it because he paid forty four billion dollars mm. for it. Why would you pay forty four billion dollars for something? that was almost bankrupt. It, it just doesn't really stack up um, massively. But, I mean, he, he kind of talks about quite a lot of things. It's a really, really kind of in- interesting interview. I haven't seen it re- released in full as yet. We've just got kind of snippets of it. Uh, but, you know, he's talking about how it's been a really painful rollercoaster taking over Twitter and about how kind of a lot of the flack he gets, including on Twitter, does, does actually hurt him. You know, there's some, some kooky stuff like you'd imagine, you know, talking about, you know, how his dog is now the CEO of Twitter. So again, yes, his dog is the CEO of Twitter. Uh, Yeah, so basically, again, so this is going back to, I think this was at the end of last year, he put this basically poll on Twitter saying, should I stand down as the CEO of Twitter? And almost 60% of people said, yeah, you should do that. <laughs> so uh, he was like, yeah, I will abide by the, by this poll. And so, you know, he stood down, but hasn't really kind of appointed anyone else. So there's this kind of thing where he's like, yeah, my dog is now the CEO, which basically means, you know, he's not abiding by the poll. If, if you know, that's, that's kind of a, a more critical <laughs> interpretation perhaps. Um, so, so yeah. So um, yeah, also, also stuff that I'm sure you, you will actually uh, sympathize with, you know, stuff about him sleeping in, sleeping in the office. He's working so hard he's sleeping in the office and, Elon Musk uh, and I are so you are you are you are yes you're separated <laughs> at birth and yeah how again how he shouldn't shouldn't tweet after after 3 a.m in the morning because it causes him problems so um you know tw- Twitter be a good rule for everyone isn't definitely it? <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah I mean the, the Twitter is now private so you know it's not really a, you know kind of a huge interest to, to kind of retail investors I guess except that you know Musk is obviously involved with Tesla. He's the CEO of Tesla, which is kind of a massive uh, company, and you know a lot of a lot of kind of um, investors in in the UK will hold shares in in that company. And kind of you know this this interview, you know, worth, worth watching, I think. But um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't do anything to kind of dispel dispel that kind of reputation that he's a bit of a, a maverick and a loose cannon. I'm afraid. And it was interesting that he said that he would sell Twitter if he was approached for it. It's an interesting PR campaign to try and get a buyer for Twitter for saying that it's you yeah. know bankrupt and his dog is chief executive. It That's right. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a scramble of buyers trying to make him offers above his forty-four billion. Yeah, it's not what you call a strategy as such, is it? It kind <laughs> of feels a bit more chaotic than that. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, interestingly, he also said that you know it would need to be to the to the right person as well because obviously he's got this, uh, you know, what he sees as a kind of free speech agenda going on as well. So so yeah, as as you say, unlikely to be, um, you know, t- tickling many people's fancy. I, I think is probably the case. Um, but let's also discuss the IMF announcements this week, of which there were a couple. So the organisation produced its latest set of economic forecasts and had some pretty bleak forecasts for the outlook of the UK economy. What did they say? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, fairly gloomy set of forecasts seems to be always the case with the IMF, really. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so global growth um, expects to fall from 3.4% in 2022, so last year, to 2.8% in uh, 2023. And there's actually advanced economies, which uh, the IMF think are going to do do the worst. Their growth is forecast to fall from 2.7% last year to 1.3% in 2023. And probably, probably more unsettling really is a kind of medium term five-year forecast settling at 3% for global growth. The IMF says that's the lowest their forecast has been um, in decades. And you know they think you know a lot a lot of the things that we we, we often talk about on this podcast um, are to blame. So you know, um, sticky inflation, you know, rising interest rates, and the banking sector vulnerabilities, what's going on in Ukraine, of course, and general kind of geopolitical fragmentation as well. And I'm afraid to say, as, as you say, the UK is at the back end of forecasts for the the G7 countries for 2023. Um, the the IMF is uh, expecting the UK economy to shrink by. Uh, 0.3% um, this year. So um, my one kind of positive spin on this is that 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 forecast is up from minus 0.6% in January. So we're at least heading in the right direction, but we haven't, um, we're not going to get positive growth yet. Okay. And they also had some interesting comments about interest rates. So they said that they think interest rates are likely to fall, not just in the UK, but in other countries too, and that the current kind of spike in rate is going to be temporary, which feels like quite a switch around from the narrative we've had here, which is that maybe rates aren't going to rise much more, but they're not going to suddenly plummet either. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so I mean, they're they're talking about, um, you know, kind of going back to pre-pandemic levels, which of course kind of um, sort of brings into your mind kind of 0%. I'm not sure they're quite sure they're going that far. They're talking about real interest rates, which is kind of interest rates after adjusting um, after adjusting for in- inflation as well. And they're talking about real interest rates. I mean, in the UK, for example, going back to half a percent above whatever the inflation rate is. Um, so, you know, um, inflation is expected to fall quite quite sort of sharply over the next kind of um, year or so. Um, so, you know, that, that should also lead to kind of interest rates, you know, as you say, kind of either hikes tailing off or, or indeed uh, a fall backwards in interest rates as well. I mean, their, their argument is really based on an economic model that they've created shows interest rates falling uh, and the reasons why those interest rates are falling from the 1980s right up to 2022. And, you know, that definitely happened. You know, interest rates you fell kind of in the long term, there were kind of ups and downs, but there was a real decline in interest rates over, over that period. Um, and what the IMF is basically saying is that the main factors behind that were demographic uh, factors in terms of fertility and mortality, and also lower productivity growth in advanced economies. And they say those things aren't going away. So that when inflation falls away, actually, we'll still have those kind of problems, which led to lower interest rates in in, in um uh, you know, bef- before before we had the kind of uh, inflationary spike, um, and that that's actually where where we're heading. So, kind of interesting stuff. You know, is all the economic modelling so needs to be taken with a certain pinch of salt, uh, but some kind of food for thought uh, for investors as well. I think. Yeah, and if you if as an investor you kind of buy that theory that we're going to return to those low interest rate environments, are there things that you should be doing with your portfolio to kind of prepare for that, or any changes you should be making? Yeah, well, I guess it, it depends a little bit what what <clears throat> what your portfolio looks like or, already. Um, 
I mean, you know, look, you know, are we going back to, to lower rates? I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, we don't know kind of where interest rates are going to go. It feels, you know, unlikely that we're going to go quickly back to somewhere around, you know, kind of naught to to kind of 0.5%. I mean, let's let's remember why we had interest rates at that level. It wasn't because we had, um, you know, deflation. It was because we had a banking crisis, and that was kind of an emergency level that we kind of stayed at for a long time because we did have, we did have kind of low inflation for a long time that allowed us to be there. But you know, it feel it, you know, it, it doesn't feel like unless there's kind of some sort of you know economic crisis again that banks are suddenly going to go. You know, the, the banks are suddenly going from four or five percent to to zero percent in the same way they did during the global financial crisis. But it's reasonable to accept to ex- expect that you know interest rates do move in cycles. They go up, they go down. It's reasonable to expect at some point interest rate hikes stop, and then at some point after that, interest rates start start falling again. And it's quite interesting, actually, uh, expectations for US interest rates are now actually falling backwards. And there are now kind of, there is now markets are now pricing in interest rate cuts in the US later on this year. And that's, um, you know, they're not always right about this stuff, but that's that's an interesting change. And the big game changer there has really been, I think, the banking turmoil, you know, as you know, as we as we talked about at, at the beginning uh, of, of the pod that kind of you know relieves a lot of pressure on the central bank to push up rates um, and so kind of the markets and I think well, actually we might be in for some rate cuts over there so so yeah I mean if you think about what what rate cuts would be good for whether well, it would be good for bonds basically all the stuff that's done really badly in the rate hiking cycle so bonds um, shares generally speaking um, probably on the whole benefit from lower interest rates and, and probably growth growth sectors you know like the technology sector um uh you know kind of benefits as well from you know kind of lower interest rates um uh because you know kind of the cash flows are more distant uh, and lower interest rates mean that they're they're more valuable to to investors it's also obviously good news for for mortgage holders and by extension for the housing market um and and on the flip side, you know, bad for cash savers who are you know having a great time at the moment for the first time in ages, but but wouldn't be if interest rates start to be to be cut. So in terms of you know kind of your portfolio, it depends what it look like, looks like already. It's you know it's probably a bit of a fool's errand to kind of try and make wholesale changes to your portfolio based on where interest rates are heading because you know kind of there's really unpredictable. You don't know what the effects are going to be, and you're just going to move, end up moving your portfolio around. Uh, you know an, an awful lot so you know actually it's probably a good idea to at all times have a portfolio that's balanced and has some bits of it that are going to do well in ri- ri- rising interest rates environments some bits that might be doing well in falling interest rates environments and then what you can do is maybe do a bit of sort of you know shuffling and tilting um you know when 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 there's perhaps a, a kind of sea change coming along rather than kind of shifting your entire portfolio one way or another for something that's kind of inherently um, unpredictable, um, but yeah, worth worth kind of thinking about in the context of kind of perhaps thinking you know ahead of what 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 markets are kind of doing is kind of pricing in you know kind of the next twelve to eighteen months, and I'm now actually kind of starting to think about what happens you know after we have the peak in the interest rate cycle, and so it's probably not not a bad thing to be thinking about, and maybe just taking a look at your portfolio and see if there are any obvious things that you can do with it. 
And now into kind of more on that banking crisis, which we've talked about um, a bit on the podcast before, but we thought it would be useful to hear from fund managers who had to actually navigate um, that turmoil in the stock market. So we've got two interviews um, with different fund managers who invest fairly heavily in the financials or the kind of banking sector. So the first one is Um, with Fidelity European Trust Portfolio, which has more than a fifth of its stocks in finance-related companies. Dan Coatesworth met up with fund manager Martin Sturzel to see how he has navigated the recent banking crisis. Marcel talks about investing in companies that are built to stand the test of time, but also what he's been buying recently. So, Marcel, you've got 22% weighting to the financial sector at the end of January, How badly has the banking crisis affected your portfolio? Yeah, it's a a great question. Thanks, Dan. Um, I think it's important to look into what we actually have in that financials bucket. So very broadly, you know, we in line um, with insurance, we actually have a big overweight in diversified financials um, and more or less in line weighting in terms of banks. Um, And within that diversified financials where we have a big overweight, it's predominantly in the exchanges, so Deutsche Börse, um, and then in the private equity players such as 3i, um, EQT, and Partners Group. Um, So uh, I would say of insurance and of the kind of um, exchanges and, and private equity players, no direct impact, although some of them sold off a little bit in sympathy. Um, but really, obviously, I think what you're getting to is the, the bank's position. And within that bank's position, we've actually come through okay. Uh, you know, not uh, not hit the ball at the park, but not been carried out on a stretcher either. And I think the reason for that is just that, um, you know, we tend to invest in very, very vanilla banks. Um, so, you know, no investment banks, obviously, therefore, no Credit Suisse, no UBS. And we tend to invest in the, the largest players in grid markets. So we're talking, you know, Belgium with KBC, Norway with BNB. And as a result, while, you know, some of them have obviously sold off sympathy, in sympathy, some, have somewhat recovered since um, when it's become more clear that, you know, the contagion risk is, is relatively low. Is it, have, you, have you been sort of looking for opportunities there thinking because some of these uh in your eyes uh the type of banks you'd be happy to own they've got cheaper have you been stepping in buying more of them uh we've been looking at it um we haven't necessarily loaded up the truck yet um because we still think there are some risks out there um you know a bank run is a is a legitimate risk and and just repricing what that means for for the risk profile of the banks that we own means that you know in general we uh we like to you know we say that people act in haste and repent at their leisure um and as a result we tend to take quite a bit of time we don't generally act enormously on short-term news flow and i think this is another great example of where you know we'll take our time we'll make sure we're getting it correct um you know we won't be the first one in we won't be the first one out but um we'll take our long-term view and make sure that we we get it right the the uk looks like it might dodge a recession the u.s economy appears to be holding up a bit better than people expected but what's the sort of the outlook for continental europe this year yeah it's uh i would say you know you know if i look at our fidelity macroeconomic projections you know we're probably going to do negative gdp growth and then have a good chance of getting into a recession um 
we don't, you know, we don't play that game, if I can call it that. Um, we don't spend too much time worrying about European GDP growth relative to the rest of the world. Um, and the main reason for that is quite simply that more than half of European companies' revenues actually come from outside Europe. So this, so we strongly believe that the commonly held view that Euro European stocks are proxies for European uh, macro economies are uh, is is deeply misguided. And actually, we think you know that that misguidedness, if that's a word, um, is an opportunity that we can get on, and we we can buy, you know, attractive companies that that are trading at a discount just because they happen to be based in Europe. Um, you know, one great example is we had. Uh, Swedish Match, which was acquired by Philip Morris, um, the you know the American tobacco company, and the reason simply being that in dollar terms, Swedish Match had become much much more attractive. They have a big dollar revenue business in Zin, and just became much much more attractive for for Philip Morris to acquire it in dollar terms. And I think you'll see investors come around to similar views um, to Europe at some point in the future too. I was reading something about Fidelity European Trust, and you seem to have a sort of a motto saying investing in companies built to stand the test of time. Yeah. Think, yeah. I think I think a lot of investors will be looking for, you know, businesses like that at the moment. Are you looking for, you know, companies that have been around for the longest or ones that have actually got sort of particular attributes? Yeah, so I mean, you know, the, the the obvious place when 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 as an investor, you know, you, you get scared or there's an uncertain outlook, is you know to huddle in defensives, and and those are probably right, you know. So places like Staples, Pharma, um, you know, will clearly see much more earnings resilience even in the downturn, but you know, firstly, that's not really kind of second order thinking, and and a lot of these sectors have already you know seen kind of good defensive inflows and then also um you know you can't put your whole fund in uh, in just defensive sectors you know you won't have the balance that that we value a lot um in our portfolio so i think those are kind of the easy answers if i can put it in inverted commas but actually we think that there's a there's a few um other attributes that are less obvious, but that we've actually been looking at. And the first one is sectors that haven't even recovered to pre-COVID levels. So I'm thinking here, for example, of travel and leisure, you know, aerospace, some pockets of, um, you know, consumer, et cetera, where you can have strong conviction that, you know, with China reopening, for example, you're going to see good top line growth this year, almost ir irrespective of the macro outlook. Obviously, it will affect it but it won't be enough to torpedo that story. Um, you know, there are 150 million Chinese, there were 150 million Chinese consumers in 2019, and a good chunk of them are gonna come back to, you know, traveling this year, to buying luxury goods, for example, this year, um, regardless almost of the macro environment. If you can remember back the, you know, revenge traveling and revenge spending, that's all, you know, unfolding. So. <clears throat> that's the first kind of hidden area of defensiveness that we look for is sectors that haven't yet recovered. Um, second is strong dollar. Um, a lot of sectors, you know, are, are big beneficiaries, particularly in Europe with big cost base in Europe, in euros, sorry, um, big revenues in dollars. Um, and we think, you know, that provides a very good cushion in times of strength, the dollar tends to in times of weakness, the dollar tends to strengthen even more. Um, so, you know, companies that are long dollar is, is something that we think is another area of protection. And then lastly, just is, uh, you know, companies that don't have too much debt on the balance sheet. I think uh, 
you know, with interest rates rising, not being, you know, three, four, five times net that the EBITDA is going to be very valuable from an interest rate point of view that you don't have to pay, but also just from being able to withstand whatever curveballs the market throws at us over the next year or so. What, what sort of stuff have you been buying recently? Are, are there sort of lots of good opportunities at the moment in, in your sort of eyes? Yeah, there are. So, um, you know, we've we've uh, we've we've bought uh, five names recently um, of the last few months and uh, sold seven, which you know for us is is, is a very big deal. Our, our turnover tends to be one of the lowest, um, you know, which which we think is 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 a good way to play the long-term themes and to avoid transaction costs but actually we've found some really good ideas over the last few months um and has meant that we've traded more than than we have certainly over the last two years um one of them might be a, a good example is a lonza um lonza is a stock we've been looking at you know longingly for a number of years but the valuation was too expensive and we finally got an opportunity now to get in at what we thought at the beginning of the year was a reasonable price um, what Lonza does is they, they are CDMO, which is a very fancy way of saying they basically outsource for companies the entire drug discovery, drug manufacturing, um, and even kind of, sh- uh, you know, shipping and that kind of thing for, um, you know, it could be biotechs who are, you know, small biotech who stumbled on a good idea that needs commercialization, could be a big pharma company. Um, you know, like Nova Nordisk or whatever that just wants to kind of, you know, free up manpower and outsource the production of, of already established drugs. Um, and the great thing about Lonza is you're almost playing the picks and shovels of the pharma industry. You know, you don't need to pick who is going to develop the next great Alzheimer's drug. You don't need to pick who is going to develop the next great cancer drug or whatever it may be. You just need to pick that someone is going to develop it. Um, which, you know, is, is in our eyes a much better way to play it. Um, and then, you know, Lonza is the market leader, so growing well above what's already a kind of high single-digit growth market, um, investing heavily for kind of upcoming growth, should see good margin expansion. Um, you know, really a story, as, as, I, as I alluded to, if it's not clear from, uh, from my enthusiasm that we've been looking at for a while and, and really happy that we finally got a good entry point. Well, Marcel, thank you ever so much for talking about what you're doing in Europe at the moment for Fidelity European Trust. No worries. Thanks for having me, Dan. Right. Before our next interview, Laura, you've got some interesting news for those those grandparents who look after their grandchildren, something that could help them boost their state pension. Is that right? Yes, I have. So this is a really little known rule, but actually could be really valuable for those grandparents or other family members, but generally it tends to be grandparents who look after young children. Um, And it's where you can get national insurance credits, which count towards your state pension record. in return for looking after those grandchildren. Um, You don't have to be paid for the role and it's for looking after children under the age of 12. Um, And you don't, there's no minimum number of hours that you have to do each week or each month looking after these children. But there are certain other criteria that you have to meet. The first is you have to be um, before state pension age. So you can't yet have reached state pension age. Um, And the next is that the parents of the children need to be claiming child benefit. Um, lots of parents we know, we've talked about on this podcast before, don't claim child benefit because they've hit the so-called high income charge where they start to lose child benefit um, or they've hit that £60,000 earning limit, which means they get no child benefit. However, if you still claim it 
um, but don't receive the payment for you for it, you can get national insurance credits. If your both parents are working, they won't need those national insurance credits through claiming child benefit. So they will just not claim child benefit altogether because they're not going to get the payment and they don't need the national insurance credits for doing so. But if they do claim those credits, they can then transfer them to grandparents or other family members who are looking after their children. Um, and so if those grandparents have stopped working and they're not going to be building up their own national insurance credits themselves, that can be so valuable particularly because you can backdate claims all the way back to 2011. So this would apply to you even if you're no longer looking after grandchildren or if you've already reached state pension age. But if at any point since 2011, you have not been working, you've been looking after your grandchildren um, and you were under state pension age, you could potentially go back and claim these credits that you um, hadn't had access to. And it's a really big boost to a state pension. If you've got gaps in your national insurance record, um, then filling those gaps with things like this um, can give you a big boost. So you you need 35 what's called qualifying years um, in order to get the full new state pension. Um, if this meant that you could plug a gap, so say you only had 30 years and you wanted to plug a gap worth five years, that would get you an extra £1,500 a year in state pension once you've retired. Wow. So really valuable for a bit of form filling. And that is the caveat, there is some form filling. So you can go to the government website, um, and you can search for this on there, fill out some forms, you'll also need the parent of the child you were looking after to sign that form. Um, but very valuable for a bit of admin work if, if it does apply to you. Yeah, and I'm sure many grandparents really enjoy looking after their grandchildren anyway, but really good to know they can get some cold hard cash for it as well, right? I mean, definitely. You know, and I think not? that's why everyone's not? motivation. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you very much for that. And we've actually got a second interview now, second fund manager interview. Dan caught up with Edmund Harris. Uh, he's the chief investment officer of Guinness Global Investors, also talking about the fallout from the banking crisis that we've seen in, U in the US and Europe this year. Now, Edmund is actually arguing that it's a liquidity crisis, not a credit crisis. But might there be other issues at play? Let's find out. So, Edmund, this year's banking crisis kind of brought back some nasty memories of the global financial crisis in 2008. We sort of talked to banks desperate to sell assets to raise cash. Are there similarities to 2008 or is it a bit, di bit different this time? I think the, the similarity um, is the fact that we saw, in effect, um, some bank runs, i.e. depositors seeking to withdraw their, uh, their funds en masse. But the roots of it, I think, are, are very different. In 2008, uh, banks were stuffed full of earning assets that, were, that consisted of property-related securities, mortgage-backed securities, collateralized against the property market. And nobody knew what the value of those earning assets um, or these securities or the collateral was. So what you had there was an old-fashioned uh, credit crisis. No bank trusted another because they had no idea what the bank held um, and what supported its capital. In the most recent episode, it... Um, was a liquidity crisis in that 
depositors in a number of institutions, but specifically Signature Bank and, and SVB, got the idea that these banks were not going to be able uh, to repay their deposits. Um, and so banks were forced to sell down um, securities in order to meet the deposit withdrawals. Now, the assets that they held uh, were predominantly treasury securities um, or quasi-sovereign. Everybody knows what the value of those were. Uh, the problem was that they were having to sell those at depressed prices. So it was a it was a different it was a different fundamental problem. I mean, at the moment we're we're sort of hearing about what's the knock on effect of um, the issues that, that that we've seen with various U.S. banks. One uh, one is that across the board, the banking sector might want to sort of avoid bad debts and perhaps become a bit stricter on, on who they're going to lend to. So d- does that spell the makings of a new credit crunch? I do think that banks are going to become a little bit uh, more choosy um, about the people to whom they lend. But I think it will be about also maintaining um, liquidity and liquidity buffers. And so it will be, I, I think it's going to take uh, the form of um, higher liquidity ratios, therefore lower loan deposit um, ratios. And so therefore, I think there will be a tightening um, of credit. Whether that turns into a, sort of a credit crunch, um, I think is, is, is hard to tell. I mean, a credit crunch is quite a dramatic phrase. Um, and that is banks really on a wide scale uh, refusing to extend credit and i think that there will be uh, that credit will be available um but potentially at a higher price it will i think act um as another drag on economic growth so you've got a really interesting dynamic um at play here because the the central banks are trying to bring down the rate of inflation to do that a necessary um part of that is to engineer an economic slowdown and so far it had been just interest rates that were working to achieve that now you have this extra dynamic where <clears throat> there is the potential for banks to to tighten extension of credit um and that process is a lagging effect so if interest rates are there to to try and anticipate economic growth and slow it down Tightening of lending standards is in response to slower economic growth. Um, And so that's a lot harder to adjust. But there are potentially two forces at work now um, bringing about slower economic growth. And therefore, it's a a harder process to to manage once uh, once that gains traction. Do you think this might just be restricted to the US, um, possibly Europe, or or is this a going to be around the world, we might see some shift in what's going on. In the case of the US banks um, versus European versus Asia, this problem was particularly um, associated with the US and particularly associated with the shape of, of that yield curve. The sharp rises in interest rates pushed up the short end of the curve, the three-month end, um, so that Three-month interest rates much higher than uh, one-year, two-year, five-year interest rates, which is an unusual situation, but um, created a, a, an obvious opportunity for depositors 
to move away from the banks into money funds or in, in investing in in short dated uh, securities for for higher interest rates. That 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 set of conditions does not exist in in Asia and Europe, and so we found, in fact, that the European and Asian banks did not suffer to, uh, uh, this effect. They didn't see the movement of deposits. Um, and the the the, um, the commercial banking sectors in those areas, in fact, have remained quite stable. I think it'll they will become more cautious, presumably as as growth slows, um, which is sort of in the normal form associated with the with the credit cycle. But I think the U.S. banking system is more likely i think to to turn more so because of the exposures that have been um that have been revealed i guess just one final question is you know if you're an investor what does this mean then you potentially you could see um it's harder for us companies to grow earnings over the next year i think from an investor's point of view you should look at this as a normal economic cycle um, I don't see the sort of prospects of a banking collapse. I think that there is uh, that there is more capital in the banking systems worldwide. Um, there was a moment when in one um, part of the market where depositors got uh, got uh, were frightened and therefore sought to withdraw their deposit from a particular institution. Um, but that was backstopped very quickly. So from an investor's point of view, um, you should be looking at, at, at a world where economic growth is going to slow one way or another, that in terms of revenues, there is likely to be weaker demands so slower volume sales, and that the strongest businesses in each of the respective sectors are likely to do better um, than the second or third tier companies in the, in the same lines of, of business. And so you should be looking at those that um, are market leaders, that, uh, that have the strongest sales volume, that have therefore some pricing power. Even though earnings growth is likely to slow, they will likely benefit um, at the expense uh, of their competitors over time. And that from an investor's point of view, you should be looking at earnings and dividends as the main drivers of stock market returns. But valuation expansion um, that we've all enjoyed so much over the last 20 years is going to be a lot harder to come by. Higher interest rates exerts a downward force on, on valuations. Um, markets um, and investors as, as a group are unlikely to reward um, businesses that offer potential growth with higher valuations unless those are supported by um, by earnings and cash flows. So it, the investing style, I think, needs, needs to change somewhat to focus, therefore, on earnings and cash flows um, and not hope that a good story is likely to... Um, to deliver valuation expansion. So speculative investment, shall we say, I think is, is very much out. And that you'll find, I think that growth stocks, particularly on the more speculative end, will have, and by speculative, I mean those where the earnings are yet to come. Um, they may have the odd surge, 
as um, attitudes change towards whether interest rates are going to peak sooner rather than later. Um, but I don't think you're going to see many trends established. So I, I think the focus needs to be on, on fundamental support from company operations and then think about how much you're paying for them. Well, Edmund Harris from Guinness Global Investors, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. And that's everything we've got for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to leave a review wherever you listen and rate us too. Next week, I'll be off. So Dan and Tom Selby will be hosting with all of the latest money and markets news. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.